the early 80s, I spent a number of years, four or five years, at Emory University studying specifically human institutions. And human institutions, by the way, can be a local church or a business or a company. These are all human institutions. Uh, The only divine institution is the church of Jesus Christ, the elect of God from every nation and every generation. The divine church is the bride of Christ that soon be gathered in heaven. But in all human institutions, the statistics I'm going to give you are fairly accurate. You can give or take one or two percentage points. But here is the consistent year after year, decade after decade, tests that have been done on human institutions. They found the following. They found the first 10% of members of that human institution is made up of people who are visionaries. These are the people who are ready to catch a vision and run with it. They are the people who say, just point the way, and I am with you. Uh, They are the ones who see the big picture. They are the ones uh, who want to be part of a great vision for their life. They are the people who are not afraid of change. In fact, they are fermenting change, especially good change. They are the people who are always moving out of their comfort zone. After that top 10%, you get the next 80%. That's 80%. These are the folks who all come from Missouri, (laughs) the show-me state. They are willing to move, but only after you prove to me that this move is good for me. They are the folks who want to embrace a vision, but they have to see some evidence that this is a good thing (laughs) or it's going to succeed. They are the people who are ready to follow only if they can be sure that they're heading in the right direction. Then there's the bottom 10%. These are the folks who are always have a song, We Shall Not Be Moved. (laughs) They are going nowhere. They are stuck in cement. These are the folks that criticize everything, disagree with everything, and uh, just for the sake of disagreeing. If you say something is black, they say it's white. If you say white, they say it's black. If you say it's up, they say down. If you say down, they say up. (laughs) No matter what you do, they'll take the opposite view. Now, these statistics, as I said, if you check them out, you're going to find that within a few percentage points, basically work everywhere. As a matter of fact, it reminded me of a story that I heard many years ago from a dear friend of mine. Back in the days when the electricity was just becoming in common use. So this particular church, they had a board of deacons, and the deacons were debating uh, whether to bring light into the church. And the idea was that we're going to bring chandeliers. And so they began to debate and debate and debate whether they should bring chandeliers into the church or not. But this one deacon, no matter what they said, he says, I'm against it. No matter what they no, I'm against it. What about, well, I'm against it. And he kept saying, I'm against this and I'm against that. And finally, they asked him, tell us why are you against chandeliers? He said, I have four reasons. Number one, we don't need it. Number two, 
None of us around here know how to operate it. Number three, none of us really can pronounce it. And number four, what we need is light. (laughs) Now, let me read to you about some of the things that were said in the past about the future. And you judge for yourself, okay? 1825, the Quarterly Review said the following, What can be more absurd than the prospect held out for locomotive traveling twice as fast as the stagecoach? 1899, major newspaper article said the following, The ordinary horseless carriage is at present a luxury for the wealthy. And although its price will probably fall, but in the future it will never, never, of course, come into common use as the bicycle. 1901, William Baxter, Jr. wrote the following, As means of rapid transit, aerial navigation could not begin to compete with railroads. 1926, this is the last one. This is a scientist by the name of Lee DeForest. Here's what he said. While theoretically and technically television may be feasible, but commercially and financially I consider it to be an impossibility, a development at which we need not waste time dreaming. Why are you say you're telling us that? A friend of mine wrote a book a number of years ago, be very careful what you call impossible. <laughs> And here we're seeing, throughout the years, things that people thought was impossible became possible. But, beloved, listen to me. When it comes to the spiritual realm, what the world calls impossible, but God calls possible, the whole world is wrong, but God is right. And because God said it's possible, and everybody else is impossible— I can tell you, no matter how bleak the pathway, it is possible, and it will be possible because God says so. Think with me now. It has been 14 months from the time the people of God have escaped the slavery of Egypt, and they now at the edge of the promised land. That's where they are, at the edge of it. And God said to Moses, it's time to go. Why did God take them the long way around instead of the direct route, which would have taken them probably between three to four or five months. I want to tell you my personal opinion, okay? I make it clear. If the Bible is not clear, I tell you it's my opinion. I believe God took them the long route in order to teach them faith, in order to teach them to trust Him, in order to teach them to lean on Him, in order to teach Him to worship Him and obey Him alone before they get into the promised land. And so now I want you to turn into the book of Numbers. Here's what God said. Get some of the men and go into the land which I am giving you. Say those words with me. I am giving you. Now, I want you to read it very slowly and very carefully, (laughs) because I want to tell you, if you miss this, you miss the whole message. God says what? I'm going to send you to the land which I hope to give you. I like to give you. I can possibly give you. I might give you if you're good. 
No. I am giving you. Let's say it again. So Moses selects representative from each of the 12 tribes. So he chose 12 people, 12 spies, to go into the land of promise. And the reason it's called the promised land is because God promised it to Abraham 400 years before Moses. And so he selects a representative of each of the 12 tribes, and he sent them into the land of Canaan, and they were there for 40 days, spying around, looking around. And they came back with such excitement. And they said to Moses and to the people, they said, Moses, boss man, (laughs) God is right. This is a fertile land. Boss man, God is right. This is a prosperous land. In fact, they brought back with them a bunch of grapes. It was so big that two men had to carry it on a pole on their shoulders. They're showing what an incredible, incredible fertile land it is. And they brought this with them. In fact, it is now the emblem of the ministry of tourism in Israel. You see it in all the buses and and cars. It's this bunch of grapes that they brought from Canaan into the wilderness. That's not the end of the story. In fact, that is the only thing they agreed on when they came back, the 12 of them. They only agreed on that, and from that moment on, they split into two ways. From that moment, they split into opposite directions. There was a majority report, and there was a minority report. The majority report was 10 out of the 12. The minority report were only two, Caleb and Joshua. 10 out of the 12 thought, and they brought into the situation their own human analysis of the situation instead of God's vision. Ten out of the twelve brought their own worldly wisdom instead of appropriating the promises of God. Ten out of the twelve have organized God out of their equation. Ah, but only two, Caleb and Joshua, were ready to appropriate God's promises. Listen, there are a lot of people who believe the promises intellectually. There are a lot of people assent to the promises of God. But there are very few people who are willing to appropriate the promises of God. Two out of the twelve believed God and believed in God, and they took Him at His word. And today, my beloved friends, I want to share with you four principles. I plead with you that you would take them to heart and apply them in your personal life, apply them into your family life, apply them into your business life, apply them, yes, into the church life. First of all, I want to tell you that the majority is always wrong when God is not at the center. Secondly, it is obedience, not opinions, that brings the blessing of God. And thirdly, Giants can become grasshoppers through the eyes of faith. Fourthly, obedience will be rewarded sooner or later. From my experience, it's often later. But it will be rewarded nonetheless. First of all, the majority will always be wrong if God is not at the center. There was a time when the majority of people in America believed in God feared in God. 
I'm not saying they were committed Christians, but at least they believed in God, they feared God, and they sought to honor God. And make no mistake about it, my beloved friends, this is the one thing that brought about the past blessings to America. So question, when the 10 out of the 12 came back and said, these Canaanites, they are giants. These Canaanites will wipe us out with their breath. I have to say, they must have really have bad breath. <laughs> what were they doing? What were they doing? Ah, they looked at their circumstances, and they saw human impossibility. Oh, we cannot defeat them. We cannot get into that land. We cannot do this. We cannot do this. We cannot do this. Now, sooner they gave this faithless and doubting report. Then the masses began to cry and weep. We're dead. We're done for. It's over. I want to ask you this. What's at the stake here? What's at the stake? God's character. God's promises. God's own word is at stake here. And listen, having positive mental attitude would not have helped them at this point. Wouldn't. What they needed is to trust in God's mental attitude. (laughs) What they needed is to fly into God's altitude. What they needed was to believe in God's positive attitude. What they needed was to know that God always, always, always keep His promises, even if it takes 400 years. Please hear me right on this. When you are out of the center of the will of God, when you are out of the center of the Word of God, when you're out of the center of the promises of God, the majority will be wrong. But when you are at the center of the Word of God, you can stand alone even if the whole world is against you. So secondly, it is obedience, not opinions, that brings the blessing of God. God promised the land to Abraham 400 years earlier. Then God affirmed and reaffirmed that promise to Moses. God confirmed and reconfirmed His promise through supernatural interventions. God gave them His Holy Spirit in a form of a cloud to lead them in the wilderness. Then God gave them food supernaturally to sustain them. And to make it even more abundantly clear, the clothes that they came out with from Egypt did not wear out. What else do they want? And finally, God says, okay, time you go. Time to get into the promised land. And with this 80 or 90 percent do, we shall not be moved. Show me. Prove it to me. My opinion matters. After all that God did, after all that, all that you will still want proof. Houston will have a problem. <laughs> what about us? And I'm talking to everyone here. You can say, well, I know so-and-so is not here. He or she should listen to this. You, it's for you, each one of you individually. And it's for me. 
You have experienced salvation as a gift from the hand of God. You have experienced the joy of salvation. You have experienced the guiding hand of God in the past. You have been blessed by God in so many ways. After all that you have seen, after all that you have received from God's hand, in the moment you meet your first obstacle, the moment you face a roadblock, oh, God, He doesn't love me anymore. God abandoned me. God has forgotten me. God has not proved Himself this time. I know some people in this church, sitting in this particular service, will remember what I'm going to say. For the first six years in the life of this church, we met in a school. And the school administrators were breathing down my neck. When are you leaving? When are you going out? When are you getting your own place? And we had a wonderful committee. We worked hard. But we ran into some roadblocks. We ran into some stumbling blocks. And you would be absolutely amazed of some of the suggestions that people came up with. Oh, we must be out of the will of God. Maybe the will of God for us to not continue as a church. Somebody said, oh, maybe the will of God for us to just now, we become strong, conservative, Bible-believing church that we can disperse the people into other churches and try to influence them that way. I've got to confess to you as God my witness in the day I will see Him face to face. I found that to be a delicious temptation. I just about had enough. I thought maybe I need to go back to my global ministry. In all truthfulness. But I kept saying, and others who stood with me, we kept saying, we know better than this. When you that we heard God so clearly. I knew that God planted this church, not me, not us. God planted it for one purpose, and the purpose is to impact the globe from this pulpit to the rest of the world. We knew that. Even some people did not buy into that vision, but nonetheless, we all knew that this is God's vision for this church. And I knew in my heart that it is obedience, not opinions, that God cared for and blesses. Let me tell you that in your walk with Christ, you will face obstacles. In your walk with Christ, you're going to face some giants. In your walk with Christ, you're going to face impossibilities. In your walk with Christ, you're going to face doubt and fear. In your walk with Christ, you're going to face so many contrary opinions. In your walk with Christ, you will face temptations to stay in your comfort zone and stop dreaming and stop hoping and stop trusting and stop achieving for God. Today, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Dare not be detracted. Dare not become disobedient. Dare not give in. Dare not succumb to your feelings. Dare not listen to the soothsayers. Dare not sit back and do nothing. Dare not let opinion of others stop you from obedience. Can I get a witness? 
But rather, what I want to challenge you to do is to dare to believe the Word of God, dare to believe the promises of God, dare to obey the Word of God unconditionally, dare to face your obstacles with His power, not yours, but dare to stare down your giants. Look at those giants and say, you are nothing but grasshoppers with the power of my God. Amen? Amen. The majority will always be wrong if God is not at the center. It is obedience, not opinions, that God blesses. And thirdly, giants can become grasshoppers through the eyes of faith. Ten of the twelve saw themselves as grasshoppers and the enemies of God as giants. Two of the twelve saw the exact opposite. They saw themselves with God's power to be giants, and these enemies of God are grasshoppers. Look at verse 30 with me. Numbers still in the chapter 13. We're going to move a little bit, but we're still in chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb silenced the people before Moses. You know, I love this man. I think of all the people. There are many great people in the Bible I like to spend time with in heaven. I really want to spend time with Caleb. I really do. Let's go up at once. Occupy the land. We're able to conquer it. First, he told the doubters to shut up, and then he said, let's go. (laughs) And I want to tell you and testify in gratitude to God that in the past years, God has given us many Caleb's in this church, for whom I'll be grateful and thankful for the rest of my life. But listen, only a faith warrior can speak like Caleb, not someone who speaks through the flesh and sounds so spiritual. Only a faith warrior can stand before an angry mob and challenge their unbelief. That has to be the work of faith. This is a man with unflinching faith in the Word of God. Here's the absolute truth. Listen carefully. Those who are doubters and naysayers and negative and critical people, they hate people with unflinching faith. Did you know that? They do. You say, why? They're envious of them, number one, because these are people whose only focus is their circumstances, and they claim to be realistic. These people delight in their pity parties. These people love wellowing in their faithless lives and call it something else. Now I want you to go to chapter 14, book of Numbers. Verse 9, Joshua and Caleb were pleading with the people, don't rebel against God. Don't be afraid. Don't. The Lord is with us. Don't surrender to your fears. Don't give in to your doubt. And how did the crowd receive this faith-filled attitude? How did they receive it? Yeah, they want to stone them. They want to stone them. They want to kill them. And had God not intervened and interfered in the situation, 
Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb would have been under a pile of rocks. Let me ask you this. Please take that as a personal question to you personally. What are the giants in your life? What are the giants in your life? What are your giants that are keeping you from reaching and trusting in the promises of God? What are the giants, or who are the giants that are keeping you from a life of faith and trusting in God? What giants in your life that are keeping you and keep on harassing you, and they keep on defeating you? Today, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, you can stare those giants down in Jesus' name. The majority are wrong when God is not at the center. Obedience, not opinions, that will bring the blessing of God. Giants can be grasshoppers in the eyes of faith. Finally, obedience will be rewarded. And because it's not rewarded within 24 hours or a week or a month, it is not a reason to give up. It will be rewarded sooner or later, most likely later. In the book of Joshua, chapter 14, you read all about Joshua and Caleb 38 years after this very tragic chapter in the history of God's people. 38 years later. Both these men entered into the land of promise, and they saw those whom the others saw as giants, they saw them as grasshoppers. As far as Caleb was concerned. The bigger the enemies of God's people, the harder they fall. Joshua 14, again you read that Caleb believed that when God is with you, He will defend you. When God is with you, He'll protect you. When God is with you, He will lead you. When God is with you, He will defeat the giants in your life. And Caleb knew that God is in the business of slaying giants. Where do you think King David got the idea of slaying Goliath? Where do you think he just dreamed it up? No. He read about it. His great, 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 great uncle Caleb slay giants. He's a shepherd boy. Shepherd boy. All he did is believe God's Word literally. Beloved, this is something that is lacking among God's people and becoming less and less and less every day. Why do you think I weep? And that is why God made David the greatest king of Israel, because he took God at his word. He believed literally in the word of God. And so let me tell you this as I I come toward the end here. I believe with all my heart that the crisis we are facing is not primarily an economic crisis, or that might be a symptom. The primarily crisis is not even moral crisis. That's only a symptom of it. The crisis we are facing is not even political crisis. But the crisis we are facing today is a crisis of faith in the true living God. In taking hold of absolutely trusting in the integrity and in the infallibility of the Word of God. 
I don't know whether you read the news like I do, but I am seeing pastor after pastor, Christian writer after Christian writer, Christian blogger after Christian blogger. They are now doubting openly the infallibility of the Word of God. Could that be the great falling away that Jesus talked about or precede His return? I don't know. But that's not all. Listen carefully, please. This is important. Not only that Caleb had faith, but that faith, in that faith, he discovered the secret of the fountain of youth. What is that secret of the fountain of youth? It is called resting in the Lord. For 38 years, while the unbelieving Jews were wasting away and dying in the desert, Caleb's strength was being renewed. While the unbelieving Jews were wasting away in worry and anxiety and fear, Caleb was being renewed by faith. While these unbelieving Jews and doubters, uh, those who were down on the mouth, <laughs> were wasting away, Caleb was getting younger and stronger and looking forward to turning giants into grasshoppers. I often wondered, had they listened to Joshua and Caleb and went into the land of promise, I'm convinced even those giants, they would have said, boo, and they would have fallen down. The same can happen with you. As long as you see giants as giants, you will live in defeat. You will live a mediocre life. As long as you nurse these giants, God's reward will elude you. Today, we want to slay some giants. Amen? You ready to slay some giants? Well, name them out, not loud, but between you and God. And say, in Jesus' name, you are slain. Say it with me. In Jesus' name, whatever they are. Father, I praise you. I adore you. I worship you. I'm grateful for your word, and I'm grateful that it has everything that is necessary for salvation, for sanctification, and for justification and glorification. Father, I pray in Jesus' name and in the power of his blood, there'll be giants all over the place slain in these aisles. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.